Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The other day I found myself in a cooking situation that's fairly common. I had a few odd ingredients, some oxidized strips of bacon, a withered red pepper, a bunch of half-wilted parsley, and needed to use them before they went bad. But how? The cookbooks on my counter didn't have an index in which I could search for multiple ingredients, and I didn't have time to flip through all of the recipes for each ingredient in the hopes of a possible hit. So I popped them into Google, along with the search term recipe, and in 0.31 seconds, I had 2,830,000 hits and a variety of options, from a recipe for crispy potatoes on the New Food Network's website to Martha Stewart's recipe for gnocchi. I opted for a cold tuna salad. In her new book, Food and Social Media, You Are What You Tweet, Sina Rousseau begins her first chapter by reminding us just how uncommon my situation actually is, and how that feeling, that sense that this is what I do, that nowadays this is what we do, is just one of the fascinating characteristics of our digitized food culture. Consider, for example, that 800 million users connect through Facebook every day, or that every week Twitter users generate a billion tweets. Or that there's now 150 million bloggers adding new content to the web every day. With pith and insight, Rousseau looks at how this explosion of social media is changing not only how we view food, but also how we understand ourselves. Sina Rousseau, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. And your new book, Food and Social Media, You Are What You Tweet, is an absolute pleasure to read. I, I thought it was not only fascinating, but it's it's one of the most fun academic books I've read in I don't know how long. Well, thanks very much. That uh, That's great to hear. And it was also quite a lot of fun to, to research and to write, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> Well, I want to talk uh, about the book, of course, at length. Um, I'm excited to get to some of the ideas that you explore in it. Uh, but by way of getting there, I'm interested a little bit in your background and, and what led you to this project. And so uh, by way of a, a formal question of introduction, there's this moment in the book where you quote Virginia Willis um, on the Julie and Julia phenomenon. And she's mm-hmm. kind of all miffed um, about the fact she says something to the effect of people who happen to eat and are able to type are now um, our food experts. And, you know, she says it's the real cooks and writers of today, the real experts that need to be heard and not just any food blogger armed with an iPhone. So how is it that you got to actually be one of these academic experts in food? You know, one of those people that Virginia Willis, I don't know if if you're necessarily behind her point of view, and in fact, I'm sure you're much more measured. Um, But how how did you come about to write this book? It's an interesting uh, conglomerate of topics. Well, um, I think it was by happy accident, really, that I ended up uh, studying, well, in an academic context or engaging, researching with uh, something which I love to do in my personal capacity. So I've always loved cooking and eating. Um, and in fact, after my, I finished my master's, I got a master's degree in English, and then I thought that I was going to... Uh, put my head to rest and go and put my hands to work. And I went to, uh, to study to become a chef. And this was in about uh, 2006, I think. No, it was previous to that. I, I don't know. It was, long, it was a long time ago. Uh, it was about a decade ago. Um, and I went and did the kind of foundational uh, work at cooking school. And, and this was just around the time that Jamie Oliver was emerging as the naked chef. And, uh, and I remember one night, completely by chance, catching a, one of his shows on TV. Uh, and this wasn't one of his normal TV shows. It was rather a, a video of a live tour that he was doing where he was, um, performing on stage in a stadium and in front of thousands of people. And they were screaming teenage girls shouting at him as if he was a rock star. And I found this to be very fascinating and a little bit disturbing. Um, and then I ended up 
quitting chef school and instead writing a PhD on the phenomenon of uh, celebrity chefs and why and how they've become the new superstars. So uh, that, uh, that work also resulted in a book, actually, which was also published earlier this year, and that's called Food Media, Celebrity Chefs and the Politics of Everyday Interference. Um, and in that book, I do note uh, in my chapter on Jamie Oliver, I talk about that he and I also started using Twitter at around the same time. And, uh, and I've, of course, been following him with interest since I did my PhD. Um, and I was interested in watching this whole social media phenomenon grow. And, uh, and then I sort of got sucked in deeper and deeper, one could say. And then the opportunity presented itself to write a book about it. So I jumped right at it. Well, I have to ask, I, I think I have a good sense of what the celebrity chef is, though now I'm fascinated to, to see your take on it. What are the politics of everyday interference? Well, one of the things that, that uh, drove my interest a lot in my, in my doctoral work and in the book that resulted from it was watching not only how chefs have become the new superstars, but also how they've be begun taking on roles beyond their expertise in the kitchen. So... You're probably aware of Jamie Oliver's various attempts to involve himself in fixing things like childhood obesity, both in the UK and uh, famously or infamously in in the US. His latest uh, his latest project there in LA didn't go so well because he was banned from filming in schools. But I've been fascinated by watching this move from chefs into kind of social activists and uh, and the questions of authority and expertise that get a little bit muddled and confused along the way about uh, who has the right to interfere in those sorts of, in those sorts of ways. Mm. Well, it suddenly seems like we have a second conversation ahead of us <laughs> or a second interview. Well, I surely want to do justice to this book, though. Um, so in the, in the introduction to the book, you call it um, a book of stories about conversations. And that's, that's an interesting approach to, to trying to map a landscape. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, it's really because uh, you will, uh, if you've read the book, you will, I mean, part, well, let me rather phrase it and say that part of the fun of researching and writing the book was that I was essentially, you know, carefully watching and paying attention to the kinds of conversations that were having, uh, that, that were happening on social media platforms, including some controversies and fights and so on. Um, and why the book is a, I describe it as a collection of stories is, is that part of why social media, the social media phenomenon is so fascinating to watch is that there are no established rules. It's kind of learning by trial and error. So every event or occasion uh, becomes a kind of a, becomes a kind of turning point for perhaps best practice or a set of not exactly rules, but um, about how to move forward in this space where there are no rules. And that's part of the attraction, of course, of social media is that people can really do what they like. So it's very difficult, I think, and uh, not really desi desirable either to to extrapolate and sort of describe it in very generic uh kind of objective terms, because it is a very subjective space, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. It, it, it seemed to me like you were very much aware of and describing an emergent culture that was taking place. And I think part of the, the interest for me of, of your methodology was that you were treating uh, these events, these conversations, these occasional blow-ups that were happening uh, on social media as the evidence itself. And uh, the way it shakes out as a reader is that you suddenly read about these fascinating things that you may or may not have heard of through Twitter or through Facebook or, or on the web. And then you, it's like you're sitting across from one who has someone who has very interesting things to say about that phenomenon. And that's, of course, your take on it. Right. Yeah. Well, I suppose, I suppose it, it has had to account for the evidence. I'm just trying to imagine. I don't, I think it would be impossible for there to be a book on social media, which did not to some extent rely on anecdotes. And that's something which is, of course, a little bit tricky for, for academics. Uh, we, you know, we famously kind of reject anecdotes as, as evidence or as data. But in this case, um, that's really where the evidence lies because otherwise I, I think, uh, 
talking about social media and what goes on on social media platforms would become a very dry uh, and not very informative kind of conversation to have about it. Well, the book is anything but dry. And I think that one of the ways that we could uh, perhaps help the listeners get a better sense of, of the kind of work you do in it is to to give an example um, of, for me, they almost read like small case studies um, in mm-hmm. how to think about social media. So in the first chapter, you take up the, the topic of, of food and sharing, um, and you bring out the phenomenon of Ray Drummond as a way of illustrating uh, some of the, the dynamics behind that. Uh, would you mind introducing us to those of us that don't know the pioneer woman or the people who think she sucks? Right. <laughs> uh, well, the pioneer woman uh, is a, a an enormously successful food blogger. Um, and I, I use the word food blogger a little hesitatingly also because mostly food bloggers these days, and here again, it's a, it's a little bit tricky to make generalizations because things really do change very fast. Um, but food blogging is still, I think, regarded as a kind of amateur activity. Um, and although there are certainly bloggers out there who do uh, make a living off it, and the pioneer woman um, is certainly one of those, then she perhaps represents the kind of... Uh, the upper edge of the scale where if you visit her website, for instance, you'll see that it's a very professionally crafted website. Uh, there are lots of different things going on. She she lives on a ranch with uh, her husband, who she refers to as the Marlboro Man, and uh, her children, of which she has a few at least, and uh, a dog. And she's the dog is also the subject of a children's book. And she famously homeschools her children. So there are sections about homeschooling and there are lots of pictures of kind of life on the ranch. Um, there are sections on her website where members of uh, the community, of, of uh, the Pioneer Woman community can post recipes. There are sections where the Pioneer Woman uh, records her own recipes with lots of pictures and so on. So uh, she's really a kind of hit phenomenon. She was profiled in the New Yorker. She's got uh, thousands and thousands of followers. And amongst those followers are those who believe that uh, the life that she is representing or the life uh, that she's putting out there is is essentially a fake life uh, and and it uh, is a misrepresentation of what real life on on a farm is like and real life on a ranch which is much more uh, well very different to the to the quite glamorous and effortless uh, life that it looks like the pioneer woman um, occupies or lives. So she has at least uh, three dissenters uh, who have dedicated an enormous amount of time to, you know, uh, who are almost, uh, her, their involvement with her is almost parasitic, that they kind of watch her every move like hawks and uh, and spend a lot of time writing blog posts and, and having conversations with each other uh, and with some of their followers about, about that she is essentially a fake woman. So they have got monikers like uh, the one is called Pioneer Woman, spelt uh, P-I-E-N-E-A-R, uh, woman. Um, and Pioneer Woman does some very creative things with Barbie dolls uh, in sexually suggestive positions. And so she kind of uh, recreates some of the Pioneer Reed Drummond's posts, but with uh, these Barbie dolls. Uh, then there is the Marlboro Woman, and then there is uh, Pioneer Woman Sucks. Uh, spelt S-U-X. And uh, this is evidently also a social media tradition that people who get a lot of attention on social media also inevitably get a uh, a recognition by having a so-and-so sucks website. So, for instance, Rachel Ray also has a Rachel Ray sucks website and so on. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see the, these kind of two very different sides to one phenomenon, one which is very kind of polished and uh, glamorous and and positive and uh, and the other which is really trying to pull down uh, what they see as facades and that she is duping people and that she has a responsibility to tell the truth about herself and so on. And that's been a, certainly a fascinating thing to watch unfold. Yes, you, uh, you view this in part in terms of issues of authenticity, uh, but you also view it 
I think, quite productively in terms of issues of intimacy, or at least the feeling of intimacy. Intimacy, how do you mean? In terms of, there's a, a nice section in the book where you begin to talk about how it is that through social media, we begin to feel a sense of intimacy with the people we follow, which is Uh, oddly paradoxical given that we are feeling intimate with someone who's intimate with a thousand people or a hundred thousand people. Yeah, absolutely. This uh, so-called parasocial uh, relationship as, as academics uh, a few decades ago started describing the, uh, the strange relationship between, for instance, television stars or movie stars and thousands of fans, uh, and that kind of level of, of intimacy. And social media, I think, are really fascinating in terms of how they do allow that sense of proximity, uh, or, or thanks to that sense of proximity, and also thanks to, uh, Thanks to the speed of transmission of things, uh, that things happen so fast, there there is this sense of being very close to someone, uh, your favorite celebrity, for instance. And very rarely do we actually question whether the version of uh, of that person who we're following is indeed an accurate uh, version of themselves, or it's one that is uh, crafted or constructed for their fans. Also, uh, we rarely question, although this did happen to some extent in the beginning when I started uh, following Jamie Oliver on Twitter, he was obviously getting lots of questions about whether it was the real Jamie Oliver because he started sending replies about, yes, it is the real me. And then he started posting pictures of himself to kind of prove to his fans that it was indeed him and not someone, not one of his employee employees who was sending out his tweets. Um, and as I describe in, uh, in my first book, then that kind of trend caught on and Jamie Oliver was suddenly posting pictures of practically every single thing he was doing and pictures of himself with his family and of christenings with his children and or baptisms with his children and so on to the extent where I suddenly started to feel that Jamie Oliver was actually encroaching on my space. Um, but as you say, that's probably a different conversation that we can have. But yes, there's, there's a very curious, uh, there's a very curious and quite fluid notion of intimacy and, and authenticity. And of course, the idea of, of uh, which I think we all do to some extent when we participate on these forums and platforms is uh, performing our identities to some extent. And then needing to validate them. How do you, how do you validate the units of you in the social media space? Well, exactly. So one of the things that, that you begin the book by doing is, is reminding us that one of the reasons this might seem both strange and absolutely familiar is that the web is a relatively new phenomenon that, you know, it's hard to imagine when you open your laptop and look up something on Wikipedia or Google it, that you haven't been doing that your entire life. Um, mm. But you remind us quite, quite, I think pointedly that, that we, we are in a new, a new sphere, a new space. These are new, these virtual communities are things that are, are completely uh, unprecedented it's it's uh, that's that's one of the things that i do really find very fascinating and uh, uh the the kind of speed of adaptation is is quite something to behold and it's and it is that again we there's this kind of tension between that we've all taken to it you know like uh, like ducks to water almost until there is uh, until there is an issue or a controversy and then and then you quite quickly see that's really when it emerges uh, how new the, this this actually is when there's some kind of unprecedented situation for instance i i i talk about some of the issues dealing with so-called culinary plagiarism where they be, precisely because there aren't uh, precedents for or established rules about how to share or the limitations of sharing recipes. What are the differences between recipes that are adapted from or inspired by and so on. And, and it's really once through these kind of controversies that emerge as sort of learning points uh, and as useful reminders that we haven't been here all that long. Um, but it's easy to forget, I think, because because of the kind of sharing aspect where in the food world, it really is, the community aspect really is quite phenomenal. So the one story I talk about was a food blogger who lost her husband and, uh, and seeing the kind of uh, responses from essentially strangers around the world uh, to this woman's loss, uh, where one of the ways that you could express 
uh, your your condolences was to bake a particular follow a particular recipe on a particular day a, a peanut butter pie and it literally seemed that uh, thousands of strangers around the world were all baking the same cake on one day and kind of showing of of support the kind of thing it you know it it uh, it, it gives you goosebumps a little bit to watch it in a good way i think uh one of the nice things about the book is that you have a very measured approach to, to all of these um, phenomena as they're occurring. Um, and you even have a very measured approach to how people normatively judge what's going on in terms of virtual communities. There's uh, You quote Adam Gopnik about different positions that people are taking towards the rise of social media and foodieism. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we could go back to, say, one of those learning moments uh, – one of the, the the phenomena that you investigate is uh, the cook source scandal. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that and your take on it? Sure. Um, so the cook source scandal uh, er- erupted, I should say. I think emerged as a little bit uh, too slow. Um, when cook source, which was a relatively small, I believe, uh, well, I hadn't heard of it before, um, relatively small culinary magazine uh, which republished a an article on on apple pie uh, that was written by a woman called monica guido and it uh, it's published her it 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 correctly attributed uh, monica with the authorship of the article but the problem was that they hadn't asked for her permission to publish it now she uh, when she found out about it she got in touch with them and and uh, pointed out that she found this to be problematic and she would like uh, she would like an apology from them and she would also appreciate if they could give a donation uh, to I, th- I believe it was Columbia Journalism School to which the uh, the editor of Cook Source replied in an email uh, something along now I'm paraphrasing quite loose, loosely but it uh, this is what really became went viral very fast and bec- and became uh, quite infamous was that she responded something in the vein of but honestly monica don't you realize that anything that is on the web is in the public domain and therefore uh, we have the right to use it and then to add insult to injury she also pointed out that she uh, this was the editor of cook source she also pointed out that in fact the art, the original article was so badly written so she had also taken the liberty of editing it so they should in fact in fact thank her uh, or monica owed her thanks for her editing and for her attention to detail and so on now of course this uh, email went public and the food media world uh, erupted uh, and within 3 weeks that magazine had folded and that became a very instructive learning moment about uh, what exactly is meant by the public domain, uh, about important issues of intellectual property rights, uh, about c- copyright issues, and I think also about common decency uh, in terms of how you treat other people and how you treat uh, intellectual property. So, yes, that was certainly a big one uh, in the food and social media world. And you trace how this sparks the beginning of a kind of groundswell of debates about ethics and manifestos about ethics and what it means to blog. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if, if, if you hadn't looked into it, you would be amazed to discover, or once you look into it for the first time, you, you'd be amazed to discover how much, uh, how much attention there is to the goings on, on social media. And, and, there are two possible ways I think that we can read that. And the one is that it's a symptom of uh, a general just attention. And some would argue, and I might even argue an over attention to food, that food is uh, certainly getting a lion's share of attention, um, the whole kind of foodie culture. And then on the other hand, very real and I think important questions about ethics and, and how to treat intellectual property and, and not to make the mistake of thinking that because it's sort of just food, and I use ironic quotation marks when I say that, um, that it doesn't deserve the same kind of ethical attention or treatment as something that would be normally considered more serious should get. So there are now it is now a normal thing for instance for there to be uh, conferences that are dedicated to 
to food blogging and uh, and other social media activities and where you can go and hear from some of the sort of leading most popular master bloggers uh, and food writers give you tips on how to stay current, how to develop your unique voice and so on, and also how to deal with these ethical issues of what happens if you, for instance, bake a cake from a cookbook and you add your own little tweak. Perhaps you decide to throw in a dash of cinnamon into a, into a chocolate cake. Does that make it your cake? And if you post the recipe, who should get the, who should get the credit? Is it the original author or is it the blogger who makes the little twist that might turn a very good cake into an even better cake? So there are all these issues around really what come down to credit and, and trying to establish, uh, we can probably all agree on the principle of credit where credit is due, but trying to establish exactly where that credit is due. American listeners might be relieved to know that the apple pie is fully in the public domain. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this gives me a chance to ask perhaps a a more global question because you, you touched on the idea of food and social media in general, food as a topic and the kinds of attention that it's getting. Um, And so I I think one question someone might encounter ask on first encountering the book is is why food and social media you could imagine almost a hundred topics going into that title love and social media sports and social media politics and social media which i'm sure are books out there but you make a very good case for why we should be paying attention to how food is working um within the meat the you know, the blogosphere, the Twitter sphere. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that? You know, what is it about food that makes it such a special test case for thinking about social media? Well, whew, this is, there are books on these topics. Um, <laughs> Including yours. I, yeah, absolutely. Um, it is uh, food. Well, on the one hand, it's very simple that food is, uh, you know, Contrary to love or politics or football, uh, we do actually need food and we need it several times a day. So, so it's, so it's worth it. Uh, we, there's a, there's a kind of personal and measurable payoff to thinking about food, to fantasizing about food, which will hopefully, you know, the paying attention to it will hopefully result in in an actual delicious meal uh, at some point in our near future. So we have, we all have those sort of very vested interests in food. Um, There are two interesting things going on, I think, uh, at the moment. And that is uh, one of my future projects or one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment is expanding on something which I've touched on a little bit, not in this book, but in the other book, which is this uh, notion of food porn, the kind of ubiquity of uh, of very tantalizing images of food that you can find all over the web and certainly social media platforms play a very important role in that um and the what there are arguments that hold that we are we're kind of paying a little bit too much attention to food um and of course in a world of uh, i talk a little bit about the attention economy and that is a world in which Attention is our scarcest resource. There's simply too much information and data and and food out there for us to be paying attention to everything. So we so we need to. One of the challenges that faces us is that we need to think quite carefully about where we pay our attention and and trying to make sure that we make the most of the limited time and attention that we have. So it's worth if you are someone who enjoys reading about and looking at pictures of food, and I certainly do, um, if, you, if you do that for several hours a day, it may be worth asking whether your attention and time may not be better spent elsewhere. Um, and similarly, this is the really contentious and much more serious topic, I think, uh, when it comes to health and the kinds of stories around, we of course hear a lot about uh, how sick the world apparently is. We live in a, a, a so-called obesity epidemic. Um, there are lots of fad diets going on all the time. Uh, and so there are a lot of people who are understandably, thanks to media and social media also, who are understandably quite worried about how to eat and how to, uh, what, what, eat, what to eat and what not to eat and so on. Um, and this unfortunately also provides fertile ground for sort of scare stories, uh, 
misrepresentations of uh, of stories about good versus bad foods uh, and fertile ground most unfortunately for examples of bad science or what, what's also known as pseudoscience around uh, around what sorts of things to eat and what sorts of things not to eat and so on. So I think that there is both a kind of, if I may call it an epidemic of perhaps too much attention to food and then also quite an urgent need for us to to uh, think carefully to the kinds of uh, sources that we're paying attention to and being able to evaluate uh, the sorts of things that we're being told because there might be potential uh, potential negative consequences to our health and well-being. I, I think that's wonderfully said. And uh, I want to come back to this idea of attention because you have fascinating things to say about it. I would, I would add uh, to your rationale um, some of the, the tensions that you give us at the beginning of the book that the book explores through food, um, the tension between exclusivity and democracy, the tension between professionalism versus amateurism, the tension between publicity versus privacy and business versus pleasure. These are huge issues, and you're able to traverse them I think by looking at this this various material, but this idea of attention that was a, a fascinating distinction for me because I think most of the conversations I've heard about the the phenomena of the web has been information overload, an economy of information, too much information, um, and you shift the the attention quite rightly to attention. Um, mm-hmm. But the curious thing is that it's not only that we have to decide where we want to put our attention. We also, you state, want it back. Mm. We expect to be paid attention too. Absolutely. I think, I mean, that, that this is one of the things that I uh, discovered while researching and writing the book that I, that continues to fascinate me as, as a real kind of, uh, I, I, yeah, as a real kind of shift uh, that is en- enabled by social media, and that is how important it has become for us as consumers to also be given attention. And this is something that that I've I noticed through watching interactions between, uh, for instance, celebrity chefs like Mario Batali or Gordon Ramsay and their followers on Twitter, uh, where it becomes more. I, I, I've I was some t- or in the early days I was a little bit surprised to see how often uh, someone like a Gordon Ramsay or Mario Batali would respond to someone's request for a tweet because it might be their birthday or something like that, and then it became more and more evident that that becomes it's not it's not only that we as consumers want the attention but it's becoming clearer i think also from the side of the professionals or from the side of industry if i may call it that 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 that's a way to ensure our attention so by them giving us attention they can they can kind of make sure that we will stay there it's a little bit like what happens when you go to amazon and and they try to you know, ply you with all sorts of recommendations, all of which is really just to try and get you to stay there for as long as possible. And the way that they do that is to give you all these very personalized recommendations to make you as a customer or a consumer feel special and that you're not just some anonymous person shopping in an enormous warehouse, but you're someone who, you know, you're getting, you're getting the personal treatment from a virtual salesperson. That's really what's happening. And that, that I think is quite fascinating. And in one version of what people are predicting will be Web 3.0, that's kind of a microcosm of what the whole experience of the web will be like, in which the the Google searches you get are tailored to you, the news you get is tailored to you, the virtual communities you get surround you with like-minded people interested in, you know, like pursuits. And you see something quite dangerous about that, at least viewed in one perspective, yeah, from one perspective, I mean, there, there, there are, there are um, the proverbial pros and cons to every situation, and and of course, people who are very worried about issues pertaining to privacy and so on with the internet and uh, or with the web and and with social media, um, what what they miss is that exactly as you describe that one uh, that future versions of the web, or at least yes, one version of it. Um, requires you to give up more and more of your personal information in order to get that very kind of personalized, very 
customized experience. Now, this is something which I've grappled with a little bit also in terms of, you know, whether I think it's a positive or a negative thing, because on the one hand, you can say, well, uh, if I have to be shown advertisements when I'm on Facebook or uh, on Amazon and so on, I'd rather see things that I might actually be interested in, okay? So I don't want to be shown adverts for hiking boots because I don't hike. So I'd rather that they show me ads for uh, some nice cookware that I might actually be interested in in cooking, even the, in, in buying, excuse me, uh, even if it is a kind of manipulation of my attention and my time to be forced to be forcing me to look at those things. But I think the more serious concern uh, with that particular model of the way that we interact with the internet is, or on the internet, uh, is that it potentially fuels what is known as confirmation bias. So the one of the first who came, one of the first critics who came up with this, uh, Eli Pariser, who wrote a book called The Filter Bubble, uh, he described the situation in which he asked two of his friends to Google Egypt. Uh, and one of his friends who had a browsing history of looking at sort of politically, uh, political or blogs with political commentary and, and news sites with political commentary and so on, he was directed to various links describing the Arab Spring, the so-called Arab Spring, which was happening at the time. And his other friend, uh, who hadn't done any of that sort of browsing, in fact, had no browsing history related to Egypt, uh, didn't get any references to the Arab Spring whatsoever. So the main concern there is that the web and social media then functions as a space that simply reinforces uh, our existing worldviews, doesn't, doesn't give us anything um, doesn't give us anything to challenge our worldviews and and allows us perhaps to exist a little bit too comfortably in a space that is determined by our own choices, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And one way that it looks like people have been talking about this is a form of digital narcissism, but it also seems like narcissist par- partner Echo uh, might also be a good descriptor for it in the sense that you you say something out and you only get yourself back. I was fascinated to the extent that you could go to Google and you could find out your own ad profile and tailor it so that you could better help them learn your demographic needs. Um, Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of thing that makes some people really very nervous or angry. Um, I think uh, I, th- I think it's it's kind of a, an inevitable future um, that it 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 will be that we are certainly moving into a much more personalized and customized world. And I think that there are, that, that, that there are distinct advantages to it. And I think that we also become, you know, speaking of these kind of learning moments, not everything is a kind of uh, a teachable moment, but uh, more of a learning process. Uh, I think that as we all become more web savvy and, and learn to understand the mechanisms of social media and of the internet generally, then we also become much cleverer about how we manage our time. For instance, uh, about a decade ago, there was a suggestion that we should, that we should distinguish between so-called digital immigrants and digital natives, where Digital immigrants would be the older generation. Uh, I, I count myself amongst the, <laughs> amongst this generation um, who have had to learn to use email and you know have uh, who who can still remember sometimes sitting down to put pen to paper and exercising your wrist versus the digital natives who have grown up in this very uh, information fast technical digital world. And I think we're getting to the point where it might have been a useful distinction a decade ago, but I think we're getting to the point where that distinction will, or that gap, if there was one, is going to close more and more because certainly uh, the generation who have had to learn to use email and so on are very adept at it now. And uh, and we're all learning a lot more about the web uh, every day, I think, just by using it. I think that's true, which means that we end up getting a larger set of opinions of, of different kinds of users that are beginning to emerge on the web as, as users create content. And uh, one of the issues this brings up is to what extent uh, the idea of crowd wisdom is in fact wisdom. That's a word you also put in quotes when you, you mentioned this idea. <laughs> and this particularly comes into play when uh, you begin looking into the culture of reviewing online, uh, restaurant reviews and restaurant critics. 
Yes, well, that's also quite a fascinating one. It's probably the in the in the world of food and social media, it's, it's probably where the tension is is starkest between that distinction that you uh, referred to earlier between. Uh, professionalism and amateurism and I think that was one of the areas where the kind of stings were felt first for the professional community at least as more and more uh, non-professional critics I will call them uh, started voicing opinions about about restaurants and so uh, and so forth so we've got these kind of crowd crowdsourced websites like Yelp and so on, which are pitted against the more established historical uh, organizations and publications like the Zagat Guide uh, or something even more exclusive like the Michelin Guide. The Zagat Guide is, is, uh, has always been to some extent crowdsourced because the reviews are based on, on user or include sort of user quotations and so on, but but you had to be a member of the Zagat community, a paid member, um, in fact. But what's quite interesting to see is how many established and professional critics talk about how they they even find something like Yelp quite useful because uh, they might they can they can get a sense from the, these sorts of crowd crowd sourced sites what place is worth checking out, for instance. And also they can get a sense of, uh, of kind of being, to- being put in their place. There was a quote, uh, now I forget who it was, and I'm sorry, um, but someone referring to the fact that, uh, a professional critic referring to the fact that, you know, he kind of has to keep up with food bloggers and this sort of thing because, uh, because they have got more time to kind of obsessed about, I think the particular example he used was noodles. So if he goes and reviews a, no- a noodle place, then uh, he can go and read blogs and actually be educated to some extent or find some uh, edification through reading these amateur blogs and these amateur reviews. So th- those are some of the interesting ways in which the crowdsourcing uh, or the crowds have provided some wisdom even to the professionals and the established critics. But there's, there's, there are, of course, well, I say of course, perhaps it's not so uh, inevitable, um, or maybe that's some kind to suggest that it's inevitable. But there are many more, I think there are many more stories about uh, how it's generally advised to take uh, those sorts of crowdsource sites with a pinch of salt because one of the great attractions with social media, but also one of the potential problems with social media is, as I referred to earlier, this, uh, the speed with which people can comment on things. So you can be the first person to go and check out a new restaurant and you can be the first person to write about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the review or your experience has been one which is worth sharing. Right, we see this also in, and outside of the food world, the kind of comment sections of uh, of news articles, blogs, and so on. There's a lot of vitriol that comes out. I think I think in large part because people don't actually take the time to think about what they want to say before they say it. There's there's this kind of uh, there's a pace that uh, urges people to to speak out rather than to read and think and then speak out. It takes us back to Virginia Willis's complaint that if you happen to eat and happen to have an iPhone, off you can go and begin recording or blogging about your experience. Um, Absolutely. But you also, you also bring up a, a, a different issue of that, which is it's not only the speed at which you can post, um, but it's also what social media allows you to do in terms of anonymity and uh, and who you are when you post. And you bring up uh, John Gabriel's idea of the greater internet dickweed theory. <laughs> right. Dick Wad, I think oh, it is. Oh, I think it is Dick Wad. Yeah. I would hate to get that wrong. Yeah. yeah. And as I pointed out, that is the euphemized version. Uh, well, I won't ask you for the non-euphemized version, but the essential no. equation is that anonymity allows you to to do things and say things you otherwise would never do. Absolutely. Uh, yes. And that off you go. Well, I certainly want to ask you the, the, the question that you pose at the beginning of your conclusion to the book, which I, I think will be one that will be, it's fascinating to me. Um, so I'll, I'll ask it almost as you've written it, changing it to, to include all of us. 
So mm -hmm. how is the internet changing the way we think about food? And I should mention that you put how in parentheses so that it could also right. read, is the internet changing the way we think about food? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure I can <laughs> provide the answer. Um, I, I think that the, as I, as I suggest, I think in, in that conclusion, I think that there are some ways in which it is, I think it's changing the amount that we think about food. Uh, it might also be changing the content to some extent in terms of being uh, exposed to much more about food. So if you, and I, and I hope that I make this clear in the book that if you are someone who's looking for particular information about something, whether you, uh, have got a personal interest in a particular kind of cuisine, or you like to read about, you know, people's cooking experiences or eating experiences, the web is a wonderful, a wonderful resource, uh, it, it has been, I mean, part of the joy of researching and writing not only this, but, but even my, my doctorate was, uh, it's, it's an incredibly rich resource tool. Um, it's also, of course, incredibly rich, uh, an incredibly rich procrastination tool because you can kind of go down the rabbit hole of, uh, staring at delicious looking cakes all day. Um, but, if we imagine that uh, you wanted to find out more about something or or you just uh, you follow a wide enough range of people for instance on Twitter or through your Facebook friends that you are exposed to new sorts of ideas there's a very good chance that you would you'll end up having food experiences that you wouldn't have had were it not for the internet or were it not for social media so it's, so it certainly can contribute content in that way um in terms of the more uh serious, I, I think, question that have been posed by some critics in terms of whether there are sort of mechanical changes or uh, neurological, scientific, biological changes to the way that we think about things through, through our interaction with this digital technology. For instance, uh, the getting used to the instant gratification of, of clicking around and, and uh, paying partial attention to many things at once and so on. I don't think there's evidence yet that uh, that is the case, that, uh, that the internet is changing us on a kind of neurological level. Um, but in terms of giving us more food for thought... Uh, if I may end on such an obvious uh, pun, then absolutely. That kind of pun, I think, is perfect for social media. It's yeah, it's terribly hard to avoid, though. You can imagine. I mean, and writing, as I even pointed out in the book, you know, web critics who are writing about nothing to do with food can't stop using food analogies. In terms of uh, the attention, the one example I give, or the one critic I refer to, uh, in in terms of the attention. Uh, economics thing, they use the analogy of knowing that, you know, we should eat more broccoli, but there's just so much tasty chocolate around. So it's just so easy to look at other things which are, which give us more kind of instant gratification than choosing the kind of more fibrous uh, green leafy vegetables, which we know ought to be better for us. Yes. I think uh, the kind of policing that takes place among the content that gets posted on the web is incredible. And I think about, for those of us that do write, you know, one always talks about the inner critic maybe censoring, um, but the idea of the inner web critic just seems absolutely paralyzing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned a little bit about your next project. I wonder if you, you'd tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, sure. There's, there's unfortunately not too much to tell. I'm, uh, I'm working on a couple of uh, shorter projects, some in, uh, encyclopedia entries, actually. And, and uh, as I mentioned, food porn is one of my topics. And then I'm writing a little bit more about social media and blogging and restaurant criticism. So I, I get to uh, – it's a, it's a great opportunity to expand on some of the work that I've already done there because, because of course, even in the short space of time since the book was published uh, – there continue to be new and interesting developments, uh, and I'm, and I'm naturally keeping an eye on those sorts of things. So I look forward to being able to write about them uh, on a different platform, also. Oh, will you be doing those on an online platform? I think that they are meant to be. Yes, I can't say too much about it at the moment, but I think they will be uh, digital, uh, digital 
volumes. And can you tell us a little bit about what, what are the questions or the issues that are, are motivating those pieces now? Uh, in, ter- in terms of those particular topics? Sure. Well, I mean, so the, uh, the one encyclopedia I'm writing for is actually, they, it's an encyclopedia on the ethics of uh, food and agriculture. And, uh, and looking at the sort of ethical questions related to something like food porn, and of food porn is also a, a whole not another conversation that we can have. Uh, but it's quite fascinating because on the one hand, it's this, it's, it's this uh, quite patently benign, sort of playful celebration of the amount of attention that we give to food and all these lovely pictures uh, that are drifting around everywhere. And then there are also more... Uh, potentially serious issues to consider, for instance, accounts of people who are suffering from eating disorders who use things like the Food Network and and the blogosphere and social media platforms to kind of fuel this uh, obsessive and, and rather un- unhealthy relationship to food, uh, which is also touching on one of the issues that I spoke about a little bit earlier. Um, there was an episode of uh, Dr. Oz. I'm sure you are familiar with Dr. Oz, a slightly <laughs> controversial uh, t- doctor and talk show host um, who had a segment on one of his shows not so long ago about whether food porn was making us fat. Um, and he had on his show a guest who was he presented as a victim of food porn and someone who had put on an, a certain amount of weight uh, from being addicted to the food network. Now, one of the things that uh, people, food scholars, have been grappling with for uh, quite a long time already is is the relationship, if any, between on-screen and off-screen activity. So whether, for instance, uh, watching food television is going to do anything positive or negative for your skills in the kitchen. There have been lots of reports already about celebrity chefs having no impact on that it's all about entertainment. And then once in a while we get situations where uh, we talk about that celebrity chefs actually have a responsibility to be teaching us to eat healthy healthy food in the, wake, in the midst of this so-called obesity epidemic. Um, so there are lots of interesting avenues to explore there, really, around the, on the one hand, the kind of celebration of all things food, and then the slightly darker side to that story about whether it might be contributing to, uh, f- to fueling or maintaining uh, rather less healthy relationships to food and eating. It sounds fascinating. I hope when you finish the project, you'll come back and talk with us about it. I'd love to. It's been great talking to you. Sina, thank you so much for being with us. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview on the New Books Network with Sina Rousseau, author of Food and Social Media, You Are What You Tweet.